Welcome to the Arrive Early, Leave Late podcast. I'm your host, Bethel Duran. Thanks, as always, for listening, subscribing, rating, reviewing. Today's guest is Lance Pugmire. And if I'm not mistaken, I will ask him about this. Lance is the only beat writer covering combat sports for a major newspaper in the United States. Now, back in the glory days of boxing, every sports section used to send a reporter, a columnist, photographers to all the major fights. Those days are no longer. Now, a lot of the boxing coverage is coming online, but Lance is the one that you see at all the major club shows, all the major pay-per-views, or even the small club shows. He is there doing a great job covering boxing and the UFC and MMA and everything else you need if you're combat sports. Not like you're thinking, okay, Bethel, let me just not listen to this one. I'm not into it. No, you want to listen to this one because in the sport of boxing and in fighting, there are so many characters, and that's why the sport is thriving. The characters tell stories, Lance goes behind the scenes, develops these relationships, and tells you what they're all about. Today's guest, Lance Plugmeyer. I think you're the only person covering the sport of boxing and, or combat sports in the entire country for a major newspaper. Is that correct? I think so. Yeah, you're As absolutely like, right. You're beat. Like, that's what you do, right? Yeah. USA wow. Today got rid of theirs uh, not too long ago. And, um, you know, really none of the other major newspapers are invested in the, into the sport like we are. But I think it makes all the sense in the world that we are, given our proximity to so many gyms and so many important fights. Lance Plugmar, you also have a newsletter out, right? I, I need to subscribe because I saw your tweet about it. What's it called? The Fight Corner. And it public, if you just sign up for it, it's free. And then we'll email you the entire contents of it every Tuesday, definitely by noon. And how long have you been covering combat sports? I've been covering combat sports for the time since 2006. I was actually doing a lot of takeout, general assignment, investigative pieces at that time. And our boxing writer at the time, Steve Springer, had the opportunity to write Oscar De La Hoya's book. And so Steve was in a conundrum where he couldn't be beholden or at least have the appearance of being beholden to a major fight promoter, yet he wanted to be involved in a major life-altering project to be able to write a book. What a great honor. So Steve made the decision, hey, I'll stay and work in some general assignment capacities and do that, but I'll step away from the boxing beat. And that was my window to jump through, really. And and I think that at that same exact time, the sports editor at the time, Randy Harvey, had made the decision to cover the Ultimate Fighting Championship. So it was basically the combat sports beat became something at that time, thanks to Randy. And I've tried to consider how passionate the fan base here is in Los Angeles and really maximize our attention, especially to the biggest happenings that are going on in the sport. But you weren't doing just boxing or MMA exclusive. You, you were doing hockey. You were doing a bunch of other stuff, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, another sports editor, Mike James, had decided around uh, 2012, someone left. And it was, this was during the era of cutbacks and layoffs and all that. And we desperately needed a hockey writer. So he put me on the ducks for three years, traveling with them across the country and the Canada and covering that as a full-time beat while trying to juggle all of my combat sports. So you were doing both? Yeah, absolutely, going back and forth. How do you do that? You have to pick your battles. What am I going to emphasize? And the bigger fights, obviously, is what takes precedence. You have to decide, like, hey, if Floyd Mayweather or Manny Pacquiao is fighting, you're going to have to get someone else to cover hockey, even though we may be in the playoffs, because those fights trump a first-round playoff hockey game. What was the first fight you ever covered? First fight I ever covered actually was Shane Mosley, Oscar De Hoya won at Staples Center. Really? And the Times needed, they basically just needed some help. There was a small club show 
at the Bicycle Club Casino. Yeah. It was Jose Luis Castillo fighting for a bell against this guy, Stevie Johnson. Yeah. And Jose Luis Castillo wins the fight. It was a very compelling, dramatic fight. Obviously, a major stepping stone for Jose to lead to the Diego Corrales classic bouts. And then that same night, they just needed me to do round by round for Mosley de la Hoya. And that's all I did. I just sat up in the upper deck and and helped them do that. And that was my start. That, you're smiling right now. Were you a boxing fan growing up? or? Oh, big time. Okay. I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I can remember as like a seven-year-old. And I was just talking to George Foreman on the phone about this. My grandma would always give me the newspaper. And I was so compelled by the Ali Foreman coverage that I was seeing. It was just something so classic about this fight. It was so mysterious in Africa at night and all the stuff that was going on. I read like every bit about it. I love George Foreman. And then when I, I got up the next morning after he lost and I saw it, I was so devastated. But it's just something that I've always been. I've watched all the pay-per-views or a lot of the pay-per-views all the way up until about like, I would say the early 90s. And for whatever reason, I kind of like lost touch with boxing for a about a decade or you're so. You're probably in college growing yeah, up. Yeah, exactly. Living life, you're right? At the off, you're at off campus. That's <laughs> yes, what you're at. Yes, you went to Cal State Fullerton, right? Yes, uh, yeah. Yeah, so that's what happened. You, I, I think, same thing for me, same with boxing. You know, Mexican, you grow up in, everybody's watching a Chavez fight. Mm-hmm. You know, Vargas, are you watching all that? Then you're in your 20s and you're like, uh, maybe I'm going to go out with my friends instead of going to my uncle's house, stuff like that. But then you come back to it and you're like, so full disclosure, I do play-by-play for Golden Boy Promotions and Thompson Boxing. I'm one of their broadcasters. And I love doing the play-by-play for it. And I would go to the small club shows, not as a reporter. I mean, look, they just want media there. When I first started coming around, Monica Mendez, who was then the director of PR for Golden Boy, was like, hey, you work at ESPN, just come here. This is when Twitter was like, hey, she would give me credentials and go. And I would tweet about it, but like nobody's really giving it kind of coverage. That's when they had the old Nokia shows. And I was like, man, this is awesome being here. And I'm like, I'd rather go to those small ones when there's like nobody there and see those guys come up. And it gives me more appreciation for the sport. And you, you're there at those club shows. I see you at the Belasco shows that were working. There's some guys who only show up to the pay-per-view fights. Why do you insist on going to these smaller venues and seeing tomorrow stars? I think for that reason, exactly. Am I at every single one of them? No. But definitely, if I get wind that someone significant... Who's young? Like right now, one of the names is Virgil Ortiz. Oh, yeah. This guy's around. He's on his way up. He's knocking everyone out. I need to go see him. I need to like build that relationship with him so he knows who I am. And so when it comes to the time where he's involved in a, in a title fight, a championship fight, he's going to say, I want to get the maximum exposure on my fight. Make sure to call Lance at the Los Angeles Times and let him know that I've got a big fight coming up so we can get the word out. And we can have that kind of trust and that bond. It goes such a long way when you're sitting down for an extended interview where you're really trying to peel back the onion of who these people are. And you know, being around these club shows and being around the sport, there's no more open of an athlete than a boxer. Right. The access you get one-on-one is incredible compared to all of the major sports. And the bottom line is these guys basically, they have nothing to hide and they are just, uh, I mean, they're involved in so many unbelievably compelling things throughout their life that have brought them to the sport of boxing. So being able to tell those tales, even though they may have a scent of familiarity, they're all still very different. And that's what I try to... What uh, I've learned about these fighters, I would go to the gym, Manny Robles, trainer, when I first started doing play-by-play for Fox, he would say, hey, if you want to learn about this, you can't interview. You have to come to the gym and see how hard we work. It's a deporte de los pobres. It's a poor man's sport. Like These kids are in here training for three, four months, Hopefully they make two thousand dollars 
And then after that, taxes and the managers, they're going home with 500 and they're doing it for the love. You're going to get this more exposure. And that really helped me out about seven years ago when I started doing this and seeing these kids and every single one of them has a story. The trainers have, a, it's a sport of characters. That's why I love being around it. Look, with baseball, it's one thing, basketball, different, but with the combat sports. And when I started working for Combat America, I was doing MMA. These guys are literally putting their entire life on hold to chase a dream that's really slim. There's only a Canelo or a Pacquiao or a Floyd, but there are dozens and hundreds of guys who fought for a title but never made any kind of money. And you're like looking at these guys and you respect them even more. You're talking about the access. That's why you could be in their locker room as they're getting their hands wrapped and they're giving you an interview. I know. The biggest hearts also. It's amazing. It's amazing. You're, you're so true. I mean, I've been in the locker rooms of Miguel Cotto as he was coming up. Yeah, I remember this. This is one of the defining stories of access in the sport. Manny Pacquiao weighs in for the fourth fight against Juan Manuel Marquez. Remember how big Marquez came wow. into that fight? It looked very suspicious, very dubious. We had heard that he was working with this guy, Memo Heredia, and who had been linked to some steroids in the past. And so I was talking to Manny, and I'm like, Manny, have you seen any of these workout videos from Marquez? I mean, he was knocking these guys out and knocking them out cold down in Mexico. And Manny's sitting there, this is after the way, and Manny's sitting there eating his chicken and enjoying himself and getting ready for the fight. And he says, oh, Lance, I'm not worried about that at all. And I'm like, wow. And remember what happened the Knocked next out. night, you know? And it was just like... Those are the golden things that happen with that access that you can lean on and be able to tell stories that, I'm sorry, no one in these other sports is being able to tell like we can with boxing. That's why if you're listening to this, and you're like, you know, Bethel, this is a Rive Early Leave Late podcast. What about the Lakers? I was like, yeah, everybody has a story, but the boxing, that's why I wanted to get you on and talk about it. And we're not going to go and break down every fight. In the third round, it's, not, <laughs> it's the stories that we're around and the people and the care from the publicists to the promoters. It's like a carnival barker at times trying yeah. to get attention here you had something that was pretty cool the access speaking of access that the la times invested in where you guys did a video series you along with producer dave wine and angel rodriguez sports editor where you guys were in canelo's uh, Ca canelo's camp yeah we got in with canelo triple g and yeah, then we just for the did first it. fight yeah we we've done it for both fights actually and then we were able to do something on uh, leo santa cruz and abner maras too just because they were la guys you mm -hmm. know staging a big la fight it's like your version of 24-7, the LA Times, the Lance Plugmeyer version. They really focused on me. I mean, yeah. much to my surprise, I had but no I idea like this that was going to happen. Because it, it's seen a different way of how you interact with these guys. I like that. Why I, is that interesting? Why is that interesting to the reader? Because you're seeing how they look at you. We are so used to looking at the athlete. This is just my opinion. Seeing how these guys reacted to you, how they open up to you. Because I've interviewed every single one of those guys, and I've asked the same questions that you've asked. But you got a different response from them because I guess you're so in, you're entrenched with them. How was it like being around those guys in those camps, especially with Gennady and uh, Canelo? They were very good to me. I mean, obviously, in the second go around, Canelo was a little bit upset with me because I did some reporting on his positive test for clenbuterol. He didn't like the way that was reported and our relationship was strained. Actually, until today, I just got word that uh, now all's forgiven and I'm going to be able to get into his gym on Friday down in San Diego and spend some quality time one on one with Canelo. So there's peace between myself and Canelo and I'm so happy. Okay, for that. Well, you know, let me let me get into that. Yeah. Now, I heard the stories. Like I said, well, I work at Golden Boys. I heard that Lance Pugmire was the guy that Canelo was mad at. And I heard from the LA Times people, hey, Canelo's mad at you. How do you walk that fine line of like, hey, I'm in your camp, but I'm not your friend. Right. I'm still doing a re my reporter job. 
And then you have to do your job where you're writing about the clambuterol and the Vegas trial and how the fights were postponed and he gets mad at you. How do you mend that relationship? What I've tried to do is not that I have any access to Canelo to tell him this, but I've tried to say, look, I remember the time when his promoter, Golden Boy, when they first signed Canelo, they said, we've got this redhead who's knocking out everyone in Mexico. He's going to take this country by storm. He's the next big thing. Please do a story on him. We said, I don't speak Spanish. So I said, Kevin Baxter, who does? I said, Kevin, we should go down to Mexico and spend some quality time with Canelo. We were able to come back, have a column one story. We're bringing back column one, which is one of the best things oh, about really? the LA nice. Times. Yeah. But Kevin was able to go down there and do a column one story on Canelo Alvarez before anyone in the U.S. had really heard of the guy. And we've had our relationship dates that long. I've been at basically every single one of his fights. And so I tried to remind them of the extent of our relationship and how we've covered this guy from square one in the U.S., and we've had this bond that, as a reporter, do I have to write about clenbuterol when it happens? I absolutely do. If I'm not, I'm perceived as nothing but a shill to these guys. And honestly, I would say to the reader, don't read me. If you can see that someone is beholden to any of these promoters, and it's so easy to happen— and we see it in the sport, let's be honest. Yeah, we in know the sport, that there's there. a bunch of kiss asses. Yes, everywhere there around. is. And I, my thing is, I remember talking to my friends before I ever got into this business. And they always said, if you're going to do this, for our sake, please do this real. Do it the real way. And that's what I've tried to do. I always think about that. Like, what would my buddies say about the story that I'm turning in? Is there an unanswered question that I've, have I tried to sugarcoat anything? Because I can't do that. It would be easy to do it. I can easily do it. But I just can't. It's not in my DNA to you're ever like take the easy way out. I can't do like, it. You're you're in there. You're in their camps, but you're doing your job. Yeah. So I I guess to answer your question, I hope that tempers will calm down. That maybe there will be a prevailing thought like, hey, at the end of the day, when I add up everything that this guy has done to build my career and writing just by writing about me, I think we're okay. And I think that ultimately that's what has happened. Now things have hopefully are healing. Now let's take a quick break and get a word in from our sponsor. Hi, I'm Mark Olson. I'm the host of The Real, an LA Times podcast about entertainment and culture. I'm here to tell you about the LA Times' Envelope Live, the only resource you need for FYC season. Screeners pile up. Distractions pile on. Next thing you know, it's time to vote. Let the industry experts at the Los Angeles Times help you navigate the decision-making process. Attend screenings, talks, roundtables, and insider events with the industry's most important players. Visit latimes.com slash envelope live for more information. In baseball and basketball and the sports that I've covered for a long time, agents try to feed you a lot of stuff, especially around the trade deadline, or especially, you you, you know, this in covering hockey, uh, different sports, it's you hear a lot of stuff and you try to double source it and you're like, man, you're taking me down this wild goose chase just so you, I can write this to build this up. That way I can get this other guy going. And you, you know, when you're getting played in boxing, luckily I am not a reporter in boxing. I just do play by play. But the stories I hear, I'm like, there's no way you're going to fight that guy, but you're throwing it out there. And there's just so much BS being thrown. And that's why I love the sport because yeah. there's like, it's like we're cheesing so much gossip. That's what it is. It's just a bunch of gossip between millionaire men who are controlling their guy, trying to get the next best TV deal or whatever it is they're trying to deal. It's funny to me seeing it from a distance. Yeah. If, I was report, if I was you, I would hate it because <laughs> you have to investigate what they tell you because there might be some truth to it. How do you sort through all that? 
I think you lean back on what you learned in journalism school, which is, you know, basically. Don't believe anybody. Well, don't believe them. But if they're going to say it on the record, believe me, I'll, I'll throw it in there as a quote because it's like I can go back to that quote and said, hey, you said you wanted this fight, Bob Arum. You know, why isn't this fight happening? Remember what you said last year and, and pound these guys heads in with those kind of statements. I remember my friend Garrett Davis from London. When the whole Mayweather-Pacquiao thing was dragging out and dragging out, we finally got to a fight. I think it was around 2014. We said, that's it. We're not going to ask Mayweather any question about this fight. We're just going to ask him about Manny Pacquiao the entire time. And, you know, that's the thing, because that's the fight that my buddies want, right? That's a fight that you wanted. Everybody wanted. Everyone wanted that fight. So why are we sitting here talking about this other stupid fight that is just a buildup to the Manny Pacquiao fight? So that's what we did. And I think that it's our job as reporters to stick to the truth and to hammer the point home of this is what the public wants. These are the best fights for the sport. And we need to ask those questions that may help lead to those fights taking place. Currently, the heavyweight division grew up watching George Foreman. That was your guy. I'm not going to bring up the, the bad part where you were crying probably the next day in San Diego, <laughs> right? You're seven years old. Poor Lance Plugmeyer. <laughs> Grandma had to console you. Yeah. But the heavyweight division overseas is big right now. Anthony Joshua is a rock star, selling out 80,000 seat arenas. He hasn't fought in the United States, and he said, why should I? I mean, everyone's like, you got to come to the United States. I think that's the American attitude of like, We're, we, you need us. But if he's selling out stadiums, doing whatever he is, he can't walk around the street. He's fine there. But the U.S., they have a kid out of Alabama, Deontay Wilder, who is best friends with Nick Saban. You wrote about that. Who is this person? He's just a, such a dynamic, interesting figure. I mean, the story that I've got going this week in the Times is talking about how Deontay Wilder really is like, he's basically a direct descendant to Ali because he has the potential being from the South and being involved with uh, so many of these social issues to really lend a voice to the black man who's in the South and is struggling and is, and is seeing all these things that are happening around us in society to speak up. Deontay is such an interesting guy. I mean, 2005, he wanted to play for Nick Saban. He wanted to play for Alabama. He was he, six, six, five, six, seven? Six, wow. seven. He actually played a little quarterback coming up, too. And so he's a wide receiver in junior college. He finds out his girlfriend is pregnant with their first child, a baby girl, and she's born with spina bifida. And so he says, I mean, this is the kind of guy he is. I put this in the story. At that moment, he quit football, got three jobs, worked at IHOP, Red Lobster, and another restaurant, spent all his time working because he knew these medical bills were coming his way. And then on the in his off hours, he would start training in boxing just to see if there was potentially a chance for him to make something. He became a bronze medalist in 2008 for the U.S. Olympic team, the only medalist on that team. And by 2015, again, devoting himself and just working his ass off, he's a 2015, he's the world heavyweight champion. And he's 40-0 right now, 39 knockouts. He's knocked out every guy he's fought. And he's been sort of like the heavyweight division has been down, like you said, for so long post Mike Tyson. But now with Anthony Joshua's presence, he's pushing for that fight. Joshua is the one, if you look at what's going on and you had to say, hey, who's avoiding who? It's Joshua avoiding Wilder. Now comes Tyson Fury back from beating Vladimir Klitschko in 2015 and ending what was a very dull era in the heavyweight division. We've got Wilder Fury Saturday night at Staples Center. Which is not an easy fight. It's not an easy fight because Fury Tell people about Fury, how big this man is. Very big guy. I mean, so, so super tall. You know, after he beat Klitschko, he ballooned and weighed over 300 pounds, I think pushing 400. Went into depression, was drinking heavily. 
But since then has cleaned himself up, has come back, taken two tune-up fights, and now he says he's ready to be uh, heavyweight champion of the world again. He's 27 and 0, and he's a very deliberate, methodical. He has his uh, mind he's a gypsy. on. Yeah, he's a gypsy. He's got his mind on defense, and it's going to be a tough nut for Deontay to crack. It's a very difficult test, the most difficult of Deontay's career, and the ultimate test. It's his first pay per view on Showtime, and it's at Staples Center. It should be a great event. When you write something like that, get into the backstory of Deontay Wilder. You mentioned he wanted to play football. He had to take the job. And you you can do that in this sport where you go from one thing, like football player, and the heavyweight division, you can do this. The smaller guys know, yeah. like the 115-pounders know, you better be fighting since you're eight years old. But we had this development, the All-American heavyweights, where they were finding former college football players, right. Dominic Brazil being one of them, uh-huh. Gerald Washington, where they got these athletes and said, let's make them heavyweight boxers. And Deontay wasn't part of that, but he was the one that evolved, like where you come from the athletic background. It's very interesting to tell these stories, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's great stuff. And there's things that you take for granted. Like I was thinking, hey, I've done a couple stories on Deontay Wilder. I've really unearthed every detail on him. What else is there new? And then you start hearing all of these other details about his life. And it's just amazing, remarkable stuff. And I, I love it. Where did you go to school? Cal State Fullerton. Okay. You grew up in San Diego, Cal State Fullerton. Yes. So what was your first job? First job was at the Anaheim Bulletin, which is now folded, but the Anaheim Bulletin was a small daily newspaper that allowed me to cover the Rams when they were in Anaheim. I got to cover the Angels, and then I would also cover a high school sports and some of the college sports as well. So really, I got a wow. taste for everything. I ran the gamut of what I was able to do. I got to see how the professionals who covered the major league sports operated, and then I was able to go to a high school game where you're really on your own and figure out the best way to tell that story that was going on. So it was a great way to become a journalist. And I wish that those opportunities, I teach a journalism class at University of Laverne, and I wish those opportunities still existed for all the young reporters. I mean, I know that there's some opportunities like that in writing for websites and stuff like that, but it's just not the same as like seeing your name in print the next morning. it's different. uh, To this day, I will always remember Bruce Hazleton took a picture of me in high school I played baseball cards and I dove back to first. This is Bruce Hazleton, the byline. I was like, I met him one time. I was like, you took a picture of me. And I was like, and then uh, Phil Collin. Uh, oh, wrote, yeah. He, like, so all these like, because I grew up, I delivered the Daily Breeze and I also oh, delivered the LA Times. So when I see these bylines, that's when I see Plashky in, in the same room with me. I'm like, look, we're all in the same business. But yeah. at the end of the day, you're like, I used to read you. Like, it's pretty cool. So you did all these other things. You've done hockey. You've done all these sports. Yet when you come into the world of boxing, and you're the only one from a major newspaper because take you guys behind the scenes in boxing, it's usually guys with their iPhone calling themselves media because they have an Instagram page. And that, I'm not hating. That's just the reality of what it is right now. And there are some people without any kind of journalistic training. So when you come in or when ESPN comes in or bigger guys come in, the fighters know, especially their publicists, like this is who you have to talk to. But you talk to these fighters. Another thing that Monica Mendes taught me, she's like, these guys get hit on the head on purpose. Like they're a little bit off <laughs> and they enjoy it. Yeah. But these characters that we have in the sport, it's so cool just being around them, right? It really is. And like you said, with the, everyone with the cell phone and, and the cameras, you know, so you really have to kind of like tailor yourself to the to that situation. You definitely have to listen to the things that are being said when you're all in those scrums, but you work as hard as you can to try to get the one-on-one interviews. So you can really come up with your own unique story that it's going to set itself apart from what everyone else is doing. So you've been in most of the major fights since 2006? Yeah. So, damn. And if you include the smaller shows that you've been to, the club shows, give me a few that just stand out. 
Well, my first major fight, honestly, was uh, Floyd Mayweather Jr. and Oscar De La Hoya. That was your first that major one? First major Jeez. fight. And I and I remember thinking to myself, like, even the, the day as I was walking to the arena, I'm like, do I really know what I'm doing covering this fight? I did fight? the same thing for my first How Vegas fight. How could they trust fight? me? How oh, could right? they trust yeah, me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like you have a big old credential. You yeah. walk in through the hotel. You're like, what's going on here? It's amazing. And I'm like, you know, there was so much that ended up happening in the fight, too. So it was, uh, you catch yourself, but you got to like set that aside yeah. and go back to what you know and just pay attention to everything that's happening so you can document it, you know, as thoroughly and as entertainingly as you can. Do you keep your fight credentials? I have been doing that more and more. I didn't do it for several years. Yeah. I only kept a couple of the big fights. Yeah, I would keep the big fight. And like now I'm like, wait a minute. If I am actually working it, I do it. Because the thing is uh, more behind the scenes here. The Vegas fight credentials are mm. cool. Like the yeah. graphics that they do, it's a big one. It's like a little sticker on it. It's just really cool the way it looks. So you're walking around the casino and you're like, dang, I got this big old lanyard around me. <laughs> and I'm always the first one like, man, take your credential off. It looks stupid. It does. But I, when I get home, I hang them up. Like, <laughs> because it, it just... It takes you back to where you've been, and it's a cool moment. There's nothing like a Vegas fight. People don't understand when I tell them that. There's a buzz in the city, then there's a buzz in the hotel, and those are just from the people who aren't even going. Like yeah. People go to Vegas just to be there for the scene, right? There's nothing like that. Right. Oh, You know, I remember one of the early fights that I did was Manny Pacquiao against Ricky Hatton. There's only one. There's only one. They were singing <laughs> there's only one Ricky Hatton all week. I went to that fight as a fan. I didn't go to the fight. I went to the uh, closed circuit. And, well, I, and I heard them singing, there's only one <laughs> Ricky Hatton for eight hours. And so we heard that. And remember, and I, I voted for Ricky Hatton to go into the Hall of Fame this last year, strictly on the basis of the MGM sold out a beer when he fought. That's right. If he's, if he's right. bringing that many people to the sport, he's a Hall of Famer in my, uh, in my book. But anyways, we're sitting there. We're getting ready for the fight to begin. And someone sang the national anthem. And then Tom Jones comes in to sing God Save the Queen, and the place was going nuts. And Dan Raphael from ESPN turns to me, and he always does like a touching him up thing before yeah. the fight with us. He says, can you believe we get paid for this? <laughs> and it's, it's so true. I mean, it's a un you're absolutely right. It's an unbelievable moment before that first bell rings. And I can remember even that scene. I was sitting there with my buddy Chris Mannix from Sports Illustrated. When you saw Manny Pacquiao in one corner bouncing on his feet and Floyd Mayweather in the other corner bouncing on his feet and they were getting ready to go down after all these years, it was an unbelievable, captivating moment. Vegas fight night, it's cool. And then for me, whenever they sing the Mexican national anthem, it, like you might not even speak one word of Spanish, but the you're building, adopted. It, it's all of Mexican. Oh, you're like, oh my goodness. And I love it. The first fight I ever worked in Vegas, I did the international broadcast for Canelo against Perro Angulo. Oh, uh, okay. And uh, I'm just there, and Ale, uh, Pepe Aguilar is singing the national anthem, and he looks at me, and he like points at me. I don't know if he was pointing at me or the timekeeper, but I'm going to pretend it was me, it right? Was you, it was yeah, you. Yeah, it was more at me, and he gives a wink. I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. right, man. Then I'm like, wait a minute. What the F am I doing here? Like, <laughs> I I'm like, I'm ringside. Like, yeah. what? Like, what? Yeah. Like, I still get that energy, that vibe of like, damn, there's nothing that compares to a fight night in Las Vegas. And then, especially here in Southern California, LA Times doing a great effort of pushing the sport and covering it because you got to know your residents, the huge Latino community, which basically is keeping the sport going with all the young fighters coming through and who's spending the money. There's a reason there's Tecate and Corona sponsoring all the beers. And you go and you find these young kids and you were around there with Leo Santa Cruz and Abner Mars and the kids that are coming up, like the Latino readership, as I was telling our boss, Angel Rodriguez, before I even started working here, like these Mexicans, my friends, we want to know about boxing, but we can't read in Spanish. Give me somebody that's good. And I think that's why you became full-time, right? 
Well, thank you. I mean, I, 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 it's all, it's all on Angel. Honestly, that was not the policy before Angel got here. Angel brought me in one time and said, basically, like, what do you want to do? And I said, you know, I'm fine covering hockey. If that's my job, I'll continue to do it. But I said, I see this need. I would go on our website and I would see that the most viewed stories would be my boxing and UFC stuff. And I'm like, why aren't we invested more in this, in these sports to really maximize? Our readers are telling us what they want. So let's give them what they want. And I've tried to reward their interest and their loyalty. And I truly, truly appreciate it. The name of the newsletter is? The Fight Corner. Your Twitter is? At LA Times Pugmire. And if you were coming in for a fight, what song would you use? Ooh, Dirty Laundry. Dirty Laundry. (laughs) (laughs) One and only Lance Pugmire covering all combat sports, UFC, MMA, jiu-jitsu, whatever it is you need, and boxing for the LA Times. Seen Lance at so many fights over the years. I didn't even know these stories about him. Really cool to get him on the podcast. He'll definitely be back as the sport of boxing. Whew, there are so many characters, including the media, and I'm one of them. I'm your host, Beth Durant. Thanks for listening to the Arrive Early, Leave Late podcast. Continue to share, review, comment. We appreciate everything that you guys do for us. Arrive Early, Leave Late podcast, produced by Dave Wine, engineered by Mike Heflin. Angel Rodriguez is a sports editor. The Arrive Early Lele Podcast, an LA Times Studios production. <laughs>